Hello, this is Brian Coleman, and I think it's great is great. This is your King Baby Duck, Evan Borgo, the host of the No Borders, No Race podcast show. Join me every other Tuesday on the Boston Bastard Brigade as we spin some of the hottest tracks from the land of the rising sun. Rock, pop, metal, punk, ska, the whole works. We also sprinkle in some of the best and brightest alternative artists and bands from all over the world, creating a truly universal experience for listeners everywhere. Plus, hear my thoughts on the latest in gaming, anime, film, and even welcome a guest or two to showcase something new and enticing for your well-being. That's No Borders, No Race on every other Tuesday at B3Crew.com. The only show where a song like this... ...can be followed by this... Because we play whatever the hell we want. Thanks for listening to the second episode of I Think This Is Great with Clay Inferno. And today's guest is Brian Coleman. Writer Brian Coleman has curated an awesome book called Buy Me Boston. And don't be scared if you're not from Boston. I think you'd find some very cool, inspiring images in this book that he's put together. It's a trip to the Boston of yesteryear, guided by advertisements for the businesses and characters that made the city tick in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, So we had a great, great time talking. Brian is a writer, and uh, we've sort of crossed paths in the past. I know his wife very well, and we finally uh, met up and and talked. And I, I have to apologize to Brian because the first time I met him was around the time we were going to do the podcast and they gave him a big hug, even though I hadn't, I hadn't ever met him before. Sorry to freak you out there, but we had a good time and and, and a good hug. So there we go. I also want to give a shout out to my friend Sam from MonstersAreGood.com for the artwork. Because he's made all the artwork, the individual artwork for each of the episodes, as well as the main cover art for my Facebook page and all the stuff you see on Instagram. It's a two-tone cover. Eric Levin shot a, a picture of me for this for the 10th anniversary of when I was on the cover of a local paper. So I've used a recent press shot. I gave it to Sam. He made the fonts look good. He made the colors look good and everything he does is great. Uh, so check out monstersaregood.com. And especially if you are into like universal horror movies and stuff like that, uh, he's got some really cool uh, spooky werewolf stuff and frankenberry pins and all sorts of good stuff over at his website so thanks to cooper for the song thanks to sam for the artwork thanks for brian for coming on the show and i just have to say 
to shout out everybody that said such nice things about the first episode with LJ. Uh, we had such a great time recording it and recording the After Dark, and uh, it was just a pleasure to share that with the world. So thank you so, so much for listening, tuning in, rating me on iTunes, downloading me on that all-important first episode, because every download counts. Uh, so I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Without any further ado, I'm going to introduce... Brian Coleman, and we'll get into the podcast. But first, tune in. At the very end of the episode, you could win a copy of Buy Me Boston Volume 1. If you go to the episode page, there'll be information there. But tune in at the end of this episode to find out how you could win one of these very awesome books that's... It's more than a coffee table book. Uh, We get into really the nuts and bolts of what makes this city that I live in, Boston, so great. And Brian's adoptive home. He's lived here for a long time. It's not originally from here. But man, he he's also part of the culture here. And that's what I appreciate about what he's done with this great book. So without any further ado, let's get into the podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for reading me on iTunes. Thank you for downloading. And I will see you on the internet. Oh, man. I mean, I'm an old man, dude. This is the way it's the way I learn. It's the way I feel comfortable. But uh, but see, I can do Skype. I can I can get modern. I think you're maybe only like two years older than me. So I don't think that we're well, old. I, really? I feel I feel old sometimes. <laughs> That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. I mean, in a negative way. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, me too. That's why I do these. Uh, this That's why I'm doing a podcast so I can feel young. See what the kids Thank are doing. Again. There you go. All right, cool. Thanks, everybody. You're here listening to I Think This Is Great. And today's guest, I'm uh, very honored to talk to a very talented writer, Brian Coleman, who's here to talk about his new book, Buy Me Boston. So welcome, Brian. Thanks for coming on the show. It's very nice to be on the show, and I appreciate it. Uh, now this uh, this book by me Boston is uh, it's it's different. I was instantly attracted to it because you know I like comic books, so like I wanted yep. to have a book. Here's a book that's truly unique in the fact that it's kind of like a I guess a coffee table book. It's meant to just be looked at. It's a it tells a visual story more than it tells uh, you know it's a it's another form of storytelling, which I thought was really cool. That's fair, fair to say. I mean, the main difference with this and my past books, my last two books have been mostly text and over 500 pages each. So this, in a way, was a a weird kind of vacation in that there's almost no text. And so it's me more as as a tour guide or a curator uh, with a lot of these images that I think a lot of them speak for themselves in a certain way, especially if you grew up in the Boston area in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and even into the 90s or 2000s, because some of these places are still around. But the, for me, it was it was actually nice. It was a change of pace. It, it kind of makes sense in my overall bibliography of, of what I've done, but it's also kind of a new a new thing. So the the basic the the book itself is is basically a visual tour through the history of Boston in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but purely through advertisements uh, that were placed in mostly indie uh, news publications. Also includes some flyers as well, which I, and I assume most people also would consider to be advertising. And it's not just, I'm a music fanatic. 
Uh, everything I do is is music, but it's not just a music book. So there is a lot in there because that was inevitable. But it's also hair salons and restaurants and uh, clothing. Yeah, yes, indeed. There's a a lot of good. I mean, it's it's not comprehensive because I didn't want to try and be. It would have taken me years and years if I wanted to make it comprehensive. And, and honestly, even then, I wouldn't have been able to do it. So this is it says very clearly on the cover that this is volume one, because I clear, fully intend to make this multi volumes and to kind of keep building on it as I go along. Uh, I didn't I'm not saying I got all the important stuff. I'm not it would be impossible to get everything. So this is kind of a, the, the, the history of our town, uh, a lot of that history it doesn't exist anymore uh at least as it stands in 2018 um so it's it's kind of nice for a lot of people to go back and and remember certain clubs or restaurants that they went to um yeah so it's fun it's not meant to be academic it's just supposed to be a fun read you can you could call it a bathroom reader i don't mind that i don't Take offense at that. <laughs> well, it's it's like it's a it's like a core sample of a like a tree, but of of yeah. culture. It's like here is a, like a the whole slew of of what you would be bombarded with, uh, you know, if you grew up around here around that time. How long have you lived in Boston? I've been in Boston. I mean, I would say close to forty years of my life and I'm 48. So I was not born in Boston, but I've lived here longer by far than anywhere else. I've been here consistently since 1988, um, but I also grew up in Acton um, in the 70s. So a lot of the stuff. Massachusetts, born and bred. Yeah. Uh, no, but I've always been in the Northeast. I won't bore you with my, my whole genealogy, but I, I moved <laughs> around a good amount in my younger years. Um, but I've always considered Massachusetts and Boston my home. Always kind of felt most at, at home here, even though I have lived other places, New Jersey, uh, New York State, and places like that. And so um, well, I will ask you one boring question. Where did you go to school? Well, so I went to Boston College. Uh, okay. That's how I got here in 88. And I went to high school in central New Jersey, um, oh. which is where I first got the, uh, the music bug. There's a, a very infamous punk club called City Gardens in Trenton, New Jersey, and that's where I first started going to shows when I was about 15. A lot of great hardcore punk shows, and so that's kind of where I first became a fanatic and into music. So. And then you went, you full-on dove into hip-hop, <laughs> right? Like well, around yeah, then, or was it more? Was it more punk? And then, when did you start listening to, like the classics and like BDP and like going to those shows? Yeah, I mean, I was uh, I was always kind of, to be honest with you, always parallel pathing between punk and hip hop. Pretty much my whole, you know, existence from about fourteen years on. I started writing about hip hop because it was. Uh, I, I generally go in any endeavor I partake in, I kind of look at what's out there and say like, you know, what can, what can I, how can I kind of find my own little lane here and not do what everyone else is doing and try and explore this. So I listen. I started becoming really, really into hip hop right about the same time, like 86, 87. 
the other beautiful thing about growing up in where I grew up in central New Jersey, um, besides the fact that I was kind of equidistant between Philadelphia and New York when mm-hmm. it came to shows, I was also in listening range for DJ Red Alert and his uh, Kiss 98 show in New York uh, during the true golden age of hip hop. So that was really my wow. school when it came to knowing about hip hop, becoming really energized by it. Groups like, you know, Boogie Down Productions and Ultramagnetic and Public Enemy and and all that. So that's really where I caught that bug. But I really was always kind of listening to both as as kind of uh, fiendishly. And then so in the mid to late 90s, I started writing. I started kind of just finding a lane writing about hip hop because in hip hop at the time, most people were really trying to um, write about what was hot and popular, you know, mm-hmm. so Biggie, Biggie and, and Jay-Z and all that stuff. And I didn't really give much of a crap about the popular stuff. And so I was always more into old school and indie stuff. So I, I kind of just said, you know, let me give this a shot. And it was a lane that no one else was really messing with too much. So I didn't have a lot of competition. And I just kind of found found a niche with it and i so i think my first national i wrote for cmj in 97 but mm-hmm. then i was writing more heavily for double xl uh in about 98 and i wrote for them for many years and that was a huge magazine and um but i never covered any of the super hip and popular stuff i just said you know if you got indie hip-hop stuff i'm happy to do it if you got Kind of, that was the rise of when the turntablism thing was really big with visible scratch pickles and the executioners and all this stuff. So, so I was kind of right in the middle of that, you know. And and, and so I've never really written about kind of punk uh, or rock too much, just because I never really went into that lane. But it doesn't mean I haven't been uh, kind of listening to it the whole time. And right. um, I, I go to more more rock shows these days than hip-hop for sure well then you must have to uh when you go to make a book like this it's totally different right i mean it but you didn't just do it by yourself you have like great collaborators and like our friend wayne like you borrowed stuff from him like how did you get all of this source material for buy me boston so yeah so so basically it it um my most recent book before this was i'll check the technique more liner notes for hip-hop junkies and it was like a you know, 550 page book. But the thing I did with that book was I did a lot of visual visual items to go along with all the text. So I gathered a lot of old advertisements for some of the groups, you know, that were in the chapters. And I tried to find like press releases and photos. I licensed some photos from photographers who took pictures back in the in the 80s and 90s. Oh, nice. So I was already kind of I was going along that route diving deeper more like archival because my books are the check the technique books are all pretty much just oral histories you Mm -hmm. know it's just getting the facts but not getting the facts from old magazine articles but getting it directly from the artist so so when it came to buy me boston i started i think maybe two years ago i started to say you know what like there are so many stories about boston that i think really should be told and haven't really been told. And the, some of this history is starting to slip away. And so I started kind of allying myself with people like uh, Wayne Valdez, as you mentioned, um, David Bieber, kind of a truly legendary collector and archivist who probably mo- 
definitely the majority in the book come from his archive, probably over 50%, I would say. And then Kay Bourne was really important. Um, she wrote for the Bay State Banner, um, Boston's African-American newspaper, for about 40, 45 years. So, oh, wow. so I started basically just latching on to these people who I really admired and, and tried to be just like a sponge and, and, and help them a little bit with their archives as I could. And in the meantime, I, I would have access to those archives and I would kind of dive in. And so so that's really where it started. And, and I think the basic thing of the book that I, I, I came up with, the challenge to me was I have all these. There are three things you can do with any page in a, in a newspaper, for mm -hmm. example. There's the photo, there's the article, and then there's the ad. And most people consider the ad to be kind of like the trash, like, oh, yeah, maybe they'll glance at it. So I said, well, what if I tried to make a narrative that was purely based on the uh -huh. stuff that a lot of people ignore? And at the time, you know, some of these ads weren't really that interesting because they were what was going on now. So if it was a certain restaurant, you're just like, eh, you know, you wouldn't even look at it. But going back, you realize which restaurants are either gone and kind of missed or which ones are still around. You know, so I have one for like legal seafood when it was just <laughs> one. We're just one legal seafood. And, and the, the art was like hand-drawn. Very, very home There's fun. a lot of that, that stuff. That's really what it was. It was a very kind of hippy-dippy, earthy, crunchy type of place when it started um, in Inman Square. And look look what's become of it. But, but it's also interesting to look back and see where it started. And, I mean, the same thing with Newbery Comics. You know, you look at Newbery Comics and some of those early ads. I think I have two Newbery Comics ads in there. And, you know, look what, what's become of them now. They're uh, such an interest. And the new comics of today is very different than the new comics that existed in 1980, 1985. <laughs> but they've hung around and they're still a resource for the community um, and for the music community and music fans and everything. So, And, and thankfully, yeah. they still have comic books there. <laughs> too so i always like they always like they they keep up with that part of their name on the store so <laughs> they like do this. no i mean those guys deserve a ton of respect because yeah. some people can certainly uh bitch and moan about how it's different and oh they have all these you know tchotchkes and stuff like that but that's how they've been able to survive like yeah and everybody still... needs christmas presents you know <laughs> like i love that place it's great not true, but, but you know, I, I think that people should value a lot of these places, especially that have um, withstood all the changes that have gone on, not only in the world, you know, of commerce, but locally as well. You look at, for example, look at Tower Records. Mm -hmm. Dead, you know, and Tower was bigger, clearly, than Newbury ever was. But who's who's still remaining? Look at Strawberries. You look at a lot of these companies that were around and... A lot of times it's the, the, the ones that are smaller and a little bit more nimble that are actually able to survive because they can pivot a lot easier. Um, so anyways, not to get too academic about it, but, but I always find it um, important to me uh, not only to respect some of the places that are gone, but also to give hopefully give give a little bit of a nod to places that have managed to survive because it's, it's not easy um, because in, in the end. This book is really about entrepreneurship. It's really about local business owners uh, of all stripes, from kind of tiny little places to place, you know, things that have become mini chains like Legal Seafood or, or Newbury Comics. But everybody 
is in it and they're all kind of just trying to survive and serve their customers and it's not easy. So, so, um, but, but, but Boston is, is a town of, of fighters, you know, and a town of people who kind of scratch and claw and, and you have to, it's, it's pretty tough for anyone from Boston to give up. <laughs> and, uh, like you said, I'll, I'll paraphrase as you say, like in the intro, it's like, but a mom and pop store like has to scrap together two hundred dollars to place an ad in the Boston Phoenix, or a lot of these publications that you reference in here aren't around anymore. There was plenty that I'd never heard of, and you know, like, yeah. I consider myself a uh, uh, like an amateur Boston yeah. rock historian. You know, I was yeah. like, oh, I didn't know about a you know that that well, particular magazine, or you know, exactly. And and I didn't either. You know, like so that's kind of the beauty of of what my journey in all of this was. There were a ton of uh, publications I had uh, maybe I had heard of at some point, but was not really that familiar with. Um, the ones that I actually loved the most are um, there were like um, small programs for uh, banquets, you know, so right. someone was having like a, a, I think there was one for um, African American Police Association had some kind of a banquet. Because that's the true, for me, loving the obscure stuff. That's the money shot stuff because <clears throat> those ads are as cheap as you get. You know, they're like 25 bucks. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like putting an ad on the, the placemat at the diner. You know, it's um, they look like crap, but that's not really the point. The point is they are both supporting this cause, but also trying to get their voice heard. And the other thing that people, I think people forget a lot of times is that advertisements are the purest voice of any business. It's not an art. When, when an article is written, there's always someone who's in the middle of it. And that's, you know, the journalist. And they'll write hopefully what the, the owner of the business wants them to write. But it's not the pure voice. And so that's what ads are. That gives you the chance to make it look exactly how you want it to look and say exactly what you want to say. And sometimes that looks crazy, <laughs> but, but it's, <laughs> yep, still, yep. it's still their voice, you know, and that's that's the beauty of it. Another thing is that uh, there's whole parts of town that aren't there anymore, like combat zone stuff. Like you have a, uh, you have like one of my favorite pages in, in here is the the Naked Eye Cabaret full page yep. ad. Yep, you know, yeah, like, exactly. that's that's amazing, and like those aren't the times we live in anymore. That part of town is all condos now, but. Okay. Yeah, there's actually an, an excellent book out um, right now about uh, about the combat zone that's fully just about the combat zone. Um, I forget who the author is, but um, she put this excellent history together. It's just out now. So there's a lot of great people locally doing stuff. Dirty Old Boston does incredible stuff. And there are a lot of the thing, too, that I love is there are a lot of people like David Bieber and Wayne Valdez, who have been kind of collecting this stuff forever, and it's all in their heads, you know, because sometimes you have to have someone like myself who wasn't as in the mix as they were, because they don't consider, like, if they'll look at a, an ad for The Rat in, like, 78. Um, and they'll be like, I was at that show with the prime movers. They were well, yeah, headlining. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, that was cool, whereas I'm like, oh, my God, what was that like, you know, because I was eight years old. <laughs> So, so sometimes uh, it takes somebody uh, like myself who kind of is simpatico with, with the way they look at the world, but also wasn't there. And so I can kind of look at it with a little bit different and a little more excitement, not because they didn't care about it, but because 
they were part of it. You know what I mean? So yeah. so it, it's kind of like that aspect of it was, was I think, helpful, too. Um, but, you know, it's great. Like, overall, I just love in this era, some some people are doing incredible work, but only on Instagram. So right. I have a whole list of, of uh, places that I consider to be direct inspirations. And, you know, there's a this um, cool Chris who owns a record store in San Francisco uh, called Groove Merchant. And he has a site that's called uh, Collage Dropout. And then it, he posts stuff that he sells in his store, but he takes pictures of it very artfully. And it's it's a lot of kind of flyers and found photos and stuff like that. He's also started doing very small scale book stuff. But the fact that you can, in this day and age, share stuff with the world, with people in Finland or Japan or something like that, because you can post it on Instagram is amazing because a lot of this stuff, you wouldn't let people into your house, some stranger into your house, come on in and look through all my stuff. But it's a, it's a great way to share stuff. And then the book is, is an extension of that in a lot of ways. So, but, but, but overall, I, I, some of the stuff is mine, but really it, 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 this book exists because of the generosity of a lot of the people who basically just let me rifle through all their stuff and, and, and try and create something unique that they probably wouldn't have created themselves. It doesn't mean it's better than what they might have created, but everyone looks at these things through a different kind of vantage point, a different lens. So, so this is just my lens of, of looking through town through these ads. And, and I hope that, like, you know, like some younger artists can look at this stuff, too. I actually, you have a couple of things in here uh, from the Middle East, which is like yep. really, really old uh, ads that I had never seen before. And I worked there for like a really, really long time. And, yep. uh, and, uh, and Margo's always posting uh, Middle East flyers. So I imagine you guys have like a bunch of stuff between the two of you uh, yeah. just in your house, you know? Like, yeah. No, there's a you know the, that's the Middle East is a great example of, of the if you look at the one I think the earliest one in there is from eighty eighty one and it says kind of like live jazz and belly dancing you know that was <laughs> yeah the, restaurant you know yeah and, and then that and I even have another ad where it's kind of a more of it's highlighting that it's kind of a clothing store and a, and a boutique for you know Middle Eastern clothing and 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 kind of items and stuff like that i mean there's also an ad in the book where it was tt the bears but as a restaurant right um you know so uh other clubs like the western front if we're going to stick in cambridge western front was a hugely important club because it was in such a, a strange area you know a very residential area down by the river um importantly it was also uh one of the only uh, black-owned clubs in Boston, mm. um, and Boston is is notorious for its horrible racism in in the city itself, but also in, in the clubland, um, where for uh, R and B artists and hip hop artists, sometimes it was hard to get a gig anywhere um, in Boston proper. And I won't go into too much of that that history here, but um, it was important to have Western Front was most one of the most unique. Uh, clubs in Boston history. Really weird. I remember going there a couple of times, like really weird stage setup, but like the, the way the yep. room was, it was like yep. bizarre and up a flight of stairs and it was like half of a room almost. Yeah, you, you would walk up these weird stairs and you were pretty much on stage and then you had to kind of walk back to get so you weren't right on the stage. You know? <laughs> and in a crowded show, it, was a, it would be a little bit funky, but 
you know, but but there there are also a lot of other clubs uh, like Lanes of Mattapan and Roscoe's and uh, that are that are hugely important too. So, but either way, it's it's important that a lot of these places were mom and pop because I'm, I personally am always a fan of the underdog. So the bigger clubs weren't as interesting to me as uh, even some place that may have only existed for a couple of years. You know, there's a couple clubs in there that really weren't around long at all the underground and streets and some of these places in the 80s that didn't really last very long but while they were there they burned pretty bright and, and there's there's places too that i that i know you know that i'm reminded of in the book that i don't have a direct connection to like i never went to bun the channel yeah. and i never went to uh spit where famously i think nirvana played right and like i never went to those clubs i went to their club those clubs when they were called something else or whatever like on yeah. Lansdowne Street uh, but it's it's cool, it's cool to see that stuff but it's also very cool seeing this book some really bizarre super 80s fashion stuff yeah. uh, this uh, WSSH Beautiful Moments we bring them to <laughs> yeah. you every day looks basically oh. like I don't know like a tampon commercial or, or, or something uh, it's a radio you, station well you must not remember WSSH it was it put the soft in soft rock. It was a uh, it was a pretty wimpy station. <laughs> is it like uh, David Allen Boucher? Oh yeah, um, yeah. I mean, David Allen Boucher is a local legend, Quiet Storm style. But um, yeah, but but it's it's good and a lot. The radio ads are some of my favorites too. Oh, um, me too. The, the you look at like on them is great. So well, yeah. WBCN especially always took a. a I have a ton of BCN ads, in part because David Bieber was uh, at BCN for many, many years. But just in general, they um, they advertised a lot. And not only – there are two things. Like, you can advertise a lot, but you can also care about your advertising, too. So sometimes it's just like, yeah, yeah, put an ad in. What I don't care what it says. Um, but the BCN, you look over time. I have ads going back to probably – you know, 67, 68, all the way through the late 80s. And they changed with the times. And so they were a barometer of what was going on, um, both the music, but also how they look. And, and, and they were know, really they, doing something. I mean, it's like, it's it's legendary around here, but like they were really doing something different, totally. you know? But it made sense because not all, not all of the ads um, for the state, uh, not every cutting edge, you know, quote unquote, business had cutting edge advertising because and, and really, I think it, it boils down to a case by case people who own the establishment, either they thought that advertising was important or they just considered it like just something you had to do. You know, so you could either just do the strip ad if you were a club and just do it and make it look as boring as possible or you put a little flair to it or let's add a photo in here or let's do a separate ad for this show. But, it, but it's interesting because it, nobody has to place an ad. So if you do it, there's a bunch of different ways you can go about it. And I think the book, if you look at it, kind of just leaf through it, you see, um, you know, some of the ads are, are incredible. Like some, some of the 60s ads are really interesting, uh, some of which I didn't even include in this volume because I knew I wanted to save them. But there were these clubs in, and not just the Tea Party, but the Tea Party did a little bit. There was a club in Brighton Center called the Crosstown Bus that uh, would book. They booked the Doors in like '68, wow. and and they were booking a lot of these big groups. They were kind of neck and neck with the Tea Party in a lot of ways, but their advertising 
um, they would make these letters. The text that was used was almost uh, what would become years later uh, in graffiti known as, as wild style, where you would write something that was almost in that you had to kind of almost have the have the key to unlock it where you just had to get really high and stare at it for a couple yeah, hours like the kind of like the san francisco like rick griffin like exactly. these yeah the really thin like details on the letters does that say grateful dead yeah it does after you stare at it for a while you know? that's what I'm saying. and that's kind of fascinating you know to see that that uh but it, it's not shocking but it's really interesting to to see those combinations i mean i have other ads in there there's this one for a, a waterbed store that was called waterbed systems that i have no idea what the hell that was i don't know if that was around for more than six months it was a really interesting ad the way that, that they chose the the, the the typeface and the way it was designed um so that that was kind of the beauty of it i i didn't there was no hard and fast way that this was put together except this was stuff as i leafed through this kind of random selection of, of newspapers and magazines, like what caught my eye, whether that was visually or whether it was because I knew it was a culturally important um, thing. And then part of it, too, uh, was the fact that I've learned so much from these people uh, like David Bieber and Kay Bourne and, and Wayne uh, Valdez of kind of the putting uh, all these puzzle pieces together of, you know, I wasn't. I wasn't even born in the 60s, and during the 70s, I was a kid. I mean, I went to the No Name and Steve's Ice Cream and um, the Hilltop when I was a kid. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I, so so I know those are important. So those, to me, were kind of um, interesting. But that that's not the case with every ad in here that I was personally invested in emotionally, you know, for my own history. And, and that's kind of the beauty of it. The one thing I don't want to do, I didn't want to do, and I – hopefully haven't done is present myself as any kind of an authority. I'm just someone who kind of took this tour through and thought it was interesting enough to, to put it together. I mean, because I, I like doing books. I think it's important to document books, uh, things in book form versus magazine articles um, and things like that. Just that's just me, though. There, a lot of people consider things important. But they don't. Their first impulse isn't to document it in a book. So um, that's the beauty. It's when you kind of pair up with someone who has all this great stuff, but you're kind of helping them in a way because honestly, they'll probably never do their own book. I really think that the way you approach the book, like it, really does kind of wash over you in, in a way that that you you're not trying to make complicated juxtapositions between things because you're just like you just move along and it moves along from like disco to punk to psychedelic and, and that's just the music part but then also you just see like different aspects of the city and it, it I, I just really appreciate it um one of my favorite ads in here is i i'm pretty convinced that they haven't changed the fenway b franks logo uh, since the, uh, the year I was born in 1975, this ad in here about Fenway Franks bring home yep. plate to home plate, uh, I, like that is burned into my brain. Indeed. Yeah, no, I mean, so it's obviously stuff like the, the Fenway Franks one's great because that one pretty much touches anyone in, in this region forever. Uh, there are certain things like the Western Front is a very small slice of, of Boston that would have ever actually gone to the Western Front. So, so it's a mix of that stuff too, of, of the kind of more 
super neighborhood, super kind of specific type of things. And then huge stuff. You know, there's a, a Filene's ad in there from the day after um, JFK was assassinated that, you know, says we're going to be closed because of, you know, this horrible national tragedy. And obviously JFK born in, in, in Brookline. But beyond that, it was kind of talking about how important that was that these stores closed because, first of all, they were distraught. But second of all, I think they knew that nobody was going to go out shopping because the nation was in, in mourning. So and, so it's interesting, too. It can capture a moment in time like that that was so important. And, and they made the decision instead of running the regular, like, pantsuits or half-off yeah. <laughs> ad, let's, let's like, respect the president and, uh, and just spend our money this way. And exactly. Just, yeah, get the message out. And, uh, but but that, that issue is really interesting, though, though. I forget if that was the Herald America. I think it was the Traveler, maybe. But the, all of the ads were the same way. They were all, like, supermarkets and hair salons were all kind of the same thing. Like, they were all about Kennedy. Um, because I think they realized that trying to sell stuff on that day of all days was really not going to ring very well um, with the people you're trying to, to talk to. Um, but you can imagine, like, so that must have been really incredibly stressful and horrible. But you imagine the advertising, advertising is a very, is a very boring and static type of thing. Like, okay, we're going to run that on Tuesday. Sure. Yep. Okay. Well, how big? All of a sudden it's like, oh my God, in one day we have to change our entire paper the entire advertising for the entire paper around um, with all these custom, you know, so you can, me personally, I, I imagine stuff like that, like how crazy must that have been, but also how powerful that if you read the paper that day, that even your local supermarket was, was kind of feeling that, that pain along with everyone else. So, so it, it's interesting on a lot of levels, I think. One thing uh, too is you, you mentioned it before, but like there, some places are still around and some places aren't. And the, like another one that caught my eye was uh, was Walker's Westerns. Yeah. Walker's yeah. is still around. Walk, it's it's moved its from its original location on Boylston Street, but uh, but Rick is still running it down on on Newbury Street. And it's just like it's so crazy to see how old these ads are. And to a new generation, and to anybody, you might not even associate like. Oh, this business has been around for like fifty years, forty years. It's like, wow, that's so crazy. Totally. And the interesting thing about Walkers too is there's a lot. They did a ton of advertising. That's a good example of a, 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 a organization, a, a company that really cared about their advertising, and um, they realized that by caring about their advertising, they were becoming closer with their customer and having this conversation with them instead of a two way thing. So. There is a ton, they regular uh, regularly advertised in Boston Rock magazine in the eighties with all these kind of local or even visiting from out of town rock people. They would come through, and so the reason I didn't include a lot of those ads, this is shows you how uh, I put these things together and how amateur I am. They would have huh. so almost everything in the book is scanned on my scanner, and you can't fit. It was like a full page ad in Boston Rock Magazine. Oh, that too big, yeah, right? Too long. So I was like, these are amazing, but I can't put them on my scanner. So I could have photographed them, but that would have been a whole extra thing and they wouldn't have been as powerful. So, anyways, Walkers, even beyond what's in there and you go way, way back, they did a ton of really interesting advertising that you wouldn't expect with kind of these, I 
I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I'm, I think like, you know, Del Fuegos and Scruffy the Cat and, and so, not country bands, you know, they were uh, talking to the kind of rock and, you know, new wave and, and even punk bands at the time, because they were wearing things that maybe even the, the people who followed those bands who were in the scene didn't even realize uh, you could buy that stuff at Walker's. And they were like, oh, wow. Okay. So, you know, Scruffy the Cat shops there i can buy my leather boots over there my motorcycle boots there and you know all this other stuff so yeah so i agree that it's it, it's it's interesting and, and extra fascinating and, and like i was saying before extra appreciation should go out to these places that have figured out because it's not easy to run a business especially one that doesn't come with all this big corporate funding or anything like that to through all the, 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 the navigation that re- is required with rent increases and landlords being evil and, and you know, the shifting uh, tastes of your customers and all that stuff. So, so, yeah, exactly. Somewhere like Walker's deserves a ton of credit. So, yeah, I mean, you know, a, a place that's been around, like, since the disco era. We've <laughs> talked about a few of those for sure. Uh, yeah. It was like, it was hard for me to, I was like, how am I going to talk to Brian about this book? But I feel like we, I feel like we got through it because all I ended up doing was writing like a huge list of all of my favorite ads <laughs> in, in, in here. And I was like, and we, we touched on, we touched on a couple of them. I'm just going to flip through my notes here to see if there's any I miss. Uh, something huge like, Bob Marley at Harvard State, Harvard yep. Stadium, which is now where they have Boston Calling. So it's yep. like just the tradition continues. Yeah, there were. I mean, Harvard Stadium hosted a lot of incredible events. There was it was called Summer Thing happened there in like the late '60s. They would have like you know Sly and the Family Stone and all these big bands would play there. Yeah, you know, tons of stuff has gone on at, at venues like that. And, and it's a great point about Boston Calling now, kind of being back in that in that lineage. I mean, the other thing, too, that's kind of interesting about the book that is something that I noticed probably more than a casual person reading it is there are certain locations, if you look at the addresses, that mm-hmm. have kind of gone through all these different iterations. So what is now Bertucci's in uh, Kenmore Square was going way, way back. A Narcissus? Is that what it was? Or Narcissus, yes. It was Narcissus in the late 70s, early 80s. But before that, it was uh, three different clubs. One, which is a, one of my favorite club names of all time in Boston, called Lucifer. Oh, um, yes. This other one called Katie's, or sometimes Katie's. They, <laughs> they would write out several Ks before it. And um, so it was like a multi-floor thing. Then it became Narcissus. Also, like Night Stage, which some people will remember, was two other clubs before that. It was called the Ace of Clubs. Then it became The Club. Then it became Night Stage, and now it's Condos. So, uh, but Night Stage was one of the best Boston clubs of all time. I think a lot of people who would would went there would agree both what they booked and the sound there and uh, just the atmosphere of the club. So. There are other places, too, like in Central Square, the, uh, the Rise Club, that was also known as the New Rise, um, that was, you know, around for a while, but not forever. And, yeah, I don't know. I could go on and on. But 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 I think it's interesting, too, that um, sometimes you notice different clubs uh, have different names, you know, over time. They morph uh, the, what was the Chet's Last Call became the Causeway. 
and, and things like that. So certain places are just our bars. The Rathskeller, the, the one thing I think is interesting is the rat, um, which is on the cover of the book, as you probably know, is that was originally not a punk club at all. It was a kind of they would have just cover bands and country and Western and stuff like that. There's the first, the grand opening event from 1974. I could not, I, my, my jaw dropped to the floor <laughs> when I came across that ad in here. It's a grand opening of the rap. It was 1976 or 75 or something like that. 74, I think, but, but by wow. 76, it was basically a punk club, you know, it <laughs> that really didn't take long. No, it didn't take long, but that's a perfect <laughs> example of, uh, and, and you know, there's documentaries about the rat and, uh, there's a book about the rat, and, and it's interesting because sometimes all it takes is a crew. It takes an open-minded person who owns or books the club, and then it takes a crew uh, to kind of gather around. So you had Willie Loco Alexander and Mickey Clean and the Mez and DMZ and all these bands, and it just started swirling around, and people call – the rat, the CBGBs of Boston, and then it's it. That's exactly what it was. That's exactly what happened to CBGBs. You know, if the uh, Ramones and Television and all these bands hadn't started focusing on that club, partially because the owner was like, either you guys are awesome or I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. What, what do I have to lose? Like, it's either you or a top forty band. So I don't. I could care less. As long as you bring in people and they drink. Go go to it. Um, you know, yeah. I, I was lucky enough to uh, be able to uh, when I was like very. I was like young when I went to my freshman year of college at at Mass College of Art. And so I was like I was like seventeen, uh, going on eighteen, and yeah. I was able to and pretty much never missed a Sunday hardcore matinee show at the Rat. Like I, I got to live and experience the rat. I spent so much time there. I was yeah. there every Sunday and it was just, it was really glorious. I'm glad I have that little piece of history to <laughs> carry on with me. And, the, and then one other time when I was, uh, when I worked for the Middle East, I actually, I did something like similar to like what the, a lot of the patina, the look of your, yeah. the ads in here, the strip ads I actually yeah. gave some samples of some old newspaper clippings and scans and stuff. And I said, can you make our ad look like this? Like it used to look in 1980s and seventies. And, you know, can you like retroactively design your fancy new ad with all these fonts to just look like shit, like make it look like one of these old ads, you know? Yeah. But sometimes that that's what, you know, it's disruptive, right? It, it, that's what you need to kind of cut through all these slicker looking quote unquote modern ads and do something that's like, Oh, that's like a throwback, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, and that's, that, that's, I guess the other final thing of, of this is that for design people and art people, it's, it's a great way to look at all the way that, because the, the one, the, the most unheralded um, part of this entire book, and I'd love to have shouted them out, but I have no idea who they are, are the people who put these ads together, the visual, the graphic designers, because, they got paid, you can bet they got paid nothing. And, you know, some of them put in some incredible work on a lot of this stuff. So, so that's, it's a celebration too, hopefully of, of some people who did some, like the, uh, the in square men's bar. I don't think I included this one, um, but it was, it, they used to do like a whole month 
at a time, kind of like the Middle East used to do. Oh, but yeah, right. Like, it's very like a artistic. calendar layout. <laughs> yeah, but it was very artistically drawn, and sometimes they would draw a little icon next to a certain show or something like that. You know, so, so that's – you didn't have to do that. You could have just done the most basic block letter kind of thing, but they made it more artistic. So I always personally appreciate that as well. And I think that that's the thing. Some of the better comments I've gotten from people who have uh, gotten the book outside of Boston are that they really like it, too, from just a pure throwback, vintage advertising kind of yeah. thing. Which they have no idea what most of these places are, but they don't care. It's just like, oh, man, this stuff is so cool just to see these old 60s ads and stuff like that. So that was, in a way, my challenge that I didn't spend a ton of time trying to figure out exactly how. But I was hoping that it wouldn't just be a Boston book. Clearly, it's a Boston book, and the people who really love it are going to be from Boston. But I personally so like I'll buy books. Um, I just literally... Last week, bought a book um, that's all Chicago house music flyers from the mid '80s. Oh, nice! You know, because not because I went to any of those clubs, but just because that's like holy crap! <laughs> like I've never seen any of this stuff. So, um, yeah, it, from the design perspective and just from the content is incredible. And you might see something in there that that reminds you of something that you might want to put into volume two. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm always on the hunt um, for stuff, and that's the beauty is that, that I could I could do twenty volumes if I want. I mean, I won't, but um, at some point I'll, I'll move on to the certainly to the '90s. Uh, the '90s just didn't seem. It's, there was so much from the '60s through the '80s that I could have easily done the '90s, but it's like that that's there, and it's not as um in danger of kind of slipping away just yet uh clearly some places are gone but um you know i figured there's enough fertile ground with the, the 60s to the 80s um but yeah so I'm, I'm figuring i'll put out one a year um oh, awesome man of these just because I, I could already do volumes two and three right now to be honest with you with all the stuff i've scanned but um i'll wait a little while um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been really fun uh, for me because um, it's, it's, it's discovery as I go along. So this isn't all stuff that I've been looking at for 30 years in my own collection. So sometimes that's actually an, an advantage to someone who collects stuff and someone who can come in and look at it with new eyes and kind of look at it in a different way. Um, and so, so like I was saying before that, I think that's one thing that's that's helpful if you find someone like the people i mentioned you know Kay born and david bieber who are open enough to because because they could just say no this is mine i'm going to keep it to myself but they want to share this stuff um david bieber especially does incredible work like if you go to the verb hotel he has the whole lobby is all david bieber's uh, stuff and um, he's he so meticulous in in his displays and everything. And like, thank God for him, really, and all of these wonderful people that are preserving this history, and yourself included. Like, just like I remember when I was in one of the lessons I learned when I was in art school, then going to the Sunday hardcore matinee shows was to document and save everything. And like now, I'm looking at like slides that I shot of my artwork when I was in college. I'm glad I have that stuff. Nice. Yeah. It's a, and, and I'll be honest, like the interesting thing about me is like I save stuff here and there. I wish I most people, I think, regret 
not having saved enough stuff. So I regret there's certainly so much stuff that's gone through my hands that you need people like, you know, Kay and like David Bieber, who have I have an article from 1974. I forget what the publication was. And in it, David Bieber talks about his archive, talks about building wow. his archive. This is 44 years ago. And so you have to have that mindset. You can't just be, I mean, you can be a hoarder, but David is an archivist. Like he always thought of this as an archive and, and that it was important to save it. I mean, people can't, at some point, there, people will be go, able to go in in more of a public way to David Bieber's archive, but it's it's an insane, mind-blowing experience um, for anyone who's lucky enough to go in there. And I, I consider myself incredibly privileged to, to be able to go in there. It's basically like the last scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, and I'm not, it's better lit, but like, I'm not hitting, like it's pretty much what it is. And if you love pop culture, it's, it's that. So, but, but it's great. And, and there are people like David or like even nationally, like Johan Kugelberg, is, is a guy who I have a lot of respect for as an archivist because he has a ton of stuff and his impulse is not to hoard it away and be like, this is mine, ha ha, aren't I cool? But he collects things to share them. And that's, that's a beautiful mm -hmm. impulse um, that not everyone has. So I just have extra respect for people who, who's, that is their impulse. Um, and, and you're right because the stuff that, that David Bieber especially saves, there are certain people like Kay Bourne saved a bunch of stuff that was that came across her desk as a journalist. Um, David kind of went out of his way um, searching, 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 digging, um, and eventually had this became had this reputation where people, if they were going to throw something away, hopefully their friend would say, no, 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 don't do that. There's this guy, David Bieber, he'll right. take it. And uh, because he had the space and because he was in one place and didn't have to move every year, um, they would say, bring it over. I'll take those 10 boxes of stuff that you have of your, you know, five uh, board tapes that you had, you know, from the 70s or you can't even imagine. But 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 it's those people deserve a ton of respect because all of that stuff is, as you know, is, is so ephemeral and. There are many more stories than the other way around of people who, oh, you know, I, my mom threw away my, my Mickey Mantle baseball cards. And <laughs> right. That happens all the time. And, and I don't and I understand how it happens. But um, once the word is out there that, that there is someone who will take the stuff that you consider to be trash, then that's it's it's a beautiful thing. So. Well, it's so great. Well, your book is awesome, man. I really appreciate it. What, tell us where people can learn more about the book and where they can find you online and your um, Instagram. You're going to plug your Instagram for sure. Sure. Yeah, no. So uh, the best place is just go to buy me Boston, all one word, B-U-Y me Boston dot com. And that's got you can order the book there through me. You can get more info. You can see sample pages. And my Instagram page is uh, dignified and old, which hopefully people know what, what that is a reference to. But uh, one of my favorite Boston artists, Jonathan Richmond, um, that's one of my favorite songs of, of Jonathan's. <laughs> but I post not just Boston stuff on there, too. It's all different kinds of ads and different kinds and sometimes photos 
Um, but it's all old stuff, sometimes even dignified. And you can uh, sneak sneak a peek to uh, some hidden gems of David Bieber's collection on that Instagram there, too, if people are curious. True. And David, well, David's also, you can find David on Instagram as well. And he's just uh, David Bieber. Yes, spelled the same way as Justin, but no relation. Um, <laughs> DavidBieberArchives.com. Uh, he's, he's doing a lot of really, they've done um, video uh, kind of videos from the archives so you can look at stuff. I was interviewed. Actually, I was. On, it was kind of funny. I was interviewed on there with my friend uh, Pete Nice from Third Base, nice. who is also uh, a huge archivist collector. Oh, really? Yeah, and, yeah. He he specializes uh, beyond hip hop stuff, which he's actually super deep uh, in hip hop flyers going back to the seventies. Um, he's also really, really deep on baseball memorabilia, oh, and actually, he's the one who supplies all the stuff at McGreevy's. Um, oh, cool! Boylston Street—that's almost all from from Pete Nice's collection. Oh, anyway, that's amazing! I didn't, didn't had no idea. Yeah, Pete—he's deep in the game, man. He's he's a really fascinating guy. He's working on a couple books on his own. Um, Pete has an incredible Instagram too. I should shout out called Rushtown Two Nine Eight Rush which is a tribute to Russell Simmons. Um, And it's all just old hip hop stuff that you've never seen from his own collection. So, so guys like that kind of going back to what I was saying earlier are amazing because they're finding a way to uh, archive things publicly that they would, they would never let you, you're not going into Pete's house to look at all his old flyers and, you know, spill stuff on them. But um, you can see all this stuff on the Instagram. So that's, that's what I love that's going on. Um, some people are doing books, but you don't have to. I mean, as long as you have something cool and share it, that's that's a, that will gain my respect instantly. And, and I don't want to. I want people to go to buy this book, but th- there's another other the the Delta Bravo uh, team going out there and taking yeah. pictures of uh, famous record covers and, and stuff like that. Uh, that stuff is cool too. I'm sure you know those yep. guys. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Big shout to to Bill. Um, and the Delta Bravo guys, that, that's exactly the same, you know, dirty old Boston. A lot of people are doing stuff, uh, and, and it's all complimentary, you know, no one's really competing with that's anyone else. That's what I mean to say, yeah. It's like, it's, if you're into this stuff, like, there's, there's definitely more to it, and there's more coming from you, and uh, I'm just, I'm super excited about this book. Thank you for sending me a copy, man. I love it. It's awesome. I really appreciate that you enjoy it, and there will be plenty more. And, uh, yeah, thanks a lot. It was, it was a lot of fun to talk to you. I appreciate you having me on. Great call, Brian. Say hi to Margo for me, and uh, we'll okay. talk to you later, man. Thanks a lot. Peace. Right. I hope you enjoyed that awesome talk with Brian. And for your very own chance to win a copy of Buy Me Boston, please go to ithinkthisisgreat.com slash two. That's the number two. I think this is great.com slash two. Go to the show notes at the bottom of the page. You'll see subscribe to the newsletter. And that's how you do it. That's how you enter for a chance to win a copy of the book. Sign up for the newsletter and we will pick a winner very, very soon. Thanks for tuning in.